0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracetysd.com.
1: For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us and revealed yourself through the word of God. Lord, we uh, surrender ourselves to you this morning and ask that you speak to our hearts and uh, We ask that you will speak through Trevor as he brings the word, um, just give him a clear communication of what you've spoken to us, um, and that our hearts may be stirred to love you more and to serve you uh, in better ways. And we honor you and praise you in the name of Christ, amen. Good morning.
0: Good morning. How are you doing? That's a hard, hard verse, isn't it? I will ask you what any uh, care person will ask you: How are you feeling? Yeah. <laughs> so, if you don't know me, my name's Trevor. I help over. I oversee some of our prayer ministry here at Grace City, and uh, we're continuing through our summer series through the Book of Hebrews. And today, uh, our message, which is entitled "Stay, Stay the Course." Remain on the path. Trust Jesus unto the point of following Him and letting Him set your paths straight, right? So it's it is a really hard message we're going to dig through today. Um, just bear with us. And I think it's going to be really good just really unearth and unpack some really helpful things to hold on to. So what Ethan read, it's, it's a warning. It's a warning given from the author of Hebrews. And uh, one scholar in particular, he says that this part of the book, it, it kind of functions like a hinge. So just think of that for a moment. You have a door and a hinge, and it opens. So what we've been going through for a, long to- for a while now, uh, chapters 5 through 9. It unearths a lot of really rich theology, a lot of rich stuff that we know about Jesus because scripture tells us that, that he is both priest, that he's king, but he's a different kind of priest. He's a priest not to just, here's a sacrifice you've given me and we're gonna do this ritual thing. He's a priest that offered himself freely as a sacrifice. And I want you to remember just for a quick moment, because sometimes it's hard, it's easy to forget, that the context of the book of Hebrews is a, a Hebrew Christian teacher or preacher, and he's pastoring to a Hebrew Christian audience. So the And the other side of the hinge, it's, it's very sobering, it's very humbling, And it's so challenging. If you're like, you know, Hebrews doesn't seem too practical for me. Well, don't worry, because you got like weeks ahead. They're super practical. But it is reassuring too. By no means is it watering down the gospel, yet by no means is it watering down the present state of the world and the audience who are living in that world. So let's revisit the hinge for a moment. So to capture, the ide- uh, to capture the ideas the author is bringing to the surface, you have to grasp who Jesus says he is and how one ought to respond to the gospel because of who he is. And I think it's, it's a really easy like, cultural disconnect for us at times that we miss. It's possible for us to say that you love Jesus, yet no change or life marked by his grace occurs. Now, if you were, um, now someone from this original context, this ancient Hebrew culture, if they were to hear that notion, it would be be baffling, it would be confusing. They, they, They like honestly just wouldn't get it. So I think I want you to just think about the word love as we kind of use it and we talk about it. Um, I think I heard one person say it's, you, say, you can say that you love Starbucks, Taco Bell, your wife and your kids. Um, and if it means the same thing, there's something wrong with your life, you know? <laughs> So um, I want you to see that love, as we talk about it in English for the most part, it's mostly talking about an emotion. It's talking about something I feel, and a lot of times it's talking about a value, a valuation that we want, that we want to reap out of relationships, or possibly sow into relationships. But I want you to know that the Bible, in its language, when it talks about love, it's not thinking what I feel. Um, it's thinking what I do. It's talking about action. When God said that he's a God of love, is he saying, um, I'm thinking about you. You know I care, but I'm not going to do anything about it. No, he, he creates covenant and promises and life, and the gospel is predicated on a love that is filled with action. And I want you to know that heart, which we'll unpack a little bit, heart determines action. The things that you do always have a connection with what your heart is. And as we walk through the passage, I think this helps kind of filter a constructive conversation because it is, this is a stretching passage. So it's so important to see the correlation between heart and action, so heart, just think of it as um, your truest identity. Think of it, in my most essential parts, what makes me who I am? And then actions, so choices that I make that are predicated upon my identity, upon my heart. And there is a disconnection sometimes of my identity and my thoughts, the behaviors that arise out of what the honest, true worldview that I subscribe is, out of cultural narratives, even out of an identity to subculture. We have to be honest where the distortions and inconsistency lie between what that honest worldview that we're living is and just what the message of the gospel is. So there's two observations uh, from the text today that, I, that we'll use to, to just unearth and unpack and talk about what's going on here through this warning. And it, this warning is definitely up to this point the hardest warning in the book of Hebrews, and it's possibly one of the hardest warnings in the entire New Testament. So the question I wanna pose is this. What are the potent dangers to the Christian walk? I think it's twofold in this text. One is apostasy, and the other is persecution. So, like I said, this is this is really difficult stuff that we're about to walk through: um, apostasy and persecution. And it's it's very possible that these are these are very new words for you, especially apostasy. That's just a weird word. <laughs> I'm just be honest. Uh, it sounds like maybe it's, it's a word you heard in history class, Western Civ or something. It is a strange word. I want you to see that it's a scary word. It's, but even more than that, it's disheartening. And I want you to see why. So apostasy comes from two words being smashed together that's just kind of how Greek works. So apo means against, histomy, stand. It means to not follow. But it has um, a different kind of underlying heaviness that's going on. It comes from an active decision, choosing to reject something, yet having full understanding of what you are rejecting. So if you want like the most literal idea of what's going on here, it's leaving from a previous standing. And in this conversation, it means those who have known the power of the gospel, if you kind of turn back a couple chapters in Hebrews, um, it says those that have had knowledge of Christ, those that have experienced the spirit, yet they, Chose not just to reject it, but they t- chose to completely defect from it. They chose. So at one point, I stood firm. I know who Jesus is, but now I'm, I'm going to walk away. I don't, I don't believe this. I don't. I despise Jesus. I don't think he covers sins. I don't think he's good enough. So uh, I, I want you to. Here's a really helpful analogy to consider, and it's not mine. I'll just, (laughs) Uh, Tim Mackey shared it in in a message as he kind of unpacked this loaded term apostasy. And it's it's a little bit of a history lesson, but I think it's really helpful. So I wanna tell you about someone, um, I, I know this church is pretty unique. There's probably more than a handful of people that know about this person's life work. So his name is uh, Edward Jenner. Edward Jenner was a surgeon and physician in the 18th and 19th century. He was a European doctor in Britain during one of the most crippling medical crises facing Europe. And that was smallpox. And for us, we're on the other side of this. We're not really super worried about it. But just a little bit of context into how severe it is. It, um, it's easier to have access to like an atomic bomb than it is to have uh, access to the remaining samples of smallpox in the world. The government like monitors it that tightly. So Jenner um, in his life, he, he witnessed countless deaths of children associated with smallpox. And some 10% of the population in Europe was wiped out. It's estimated to be probably around half a million people that died from this disease. And Edward Jenner stumbled upon a remarkable discovery with one of his patients. So uh, she worked on a dairy farm. And among all these farms in rural communities, people would be Uh, exposed to what was called cowpox, which was a much weaker and easier to treat disease similar to smallpox, but very different, a lot easier to get over. So uh, Dr. Jenner believed there had to be some kind of connection between cowpox, smallpox, and there was this trend that people that would have had cowpox never had smallpox. So Jenner tested this by taking a sample from the pox or the, the, um, the spots that come up from the smallpox of the skin affected by the woman. And then he put that into an open wound on a child. Then after the child recovered from that cowpox, the child was given an inoculation of the smallpox virus. And what do you think happened? He was immune. He was completely immune to the smallpox virus. This was a groundbreaking discovery. It continues to be a groundbreaking discovery. He's credited as one of the, as having one of the greatest medical innovations that has saved the most lives. But But were his findings, as life-saving as they were, were they embraced and accepted by everyone? Not at all. So at the time, um, there was this coalition called the Anti-Vaccine Society. And they would have propaganda and posters and signs. It would show um, a doctor, presumably Dr. Jenner, Um, giving this vaccination to patients. And as the vaccine was introduced, they would have all these features popping up, right? They would have spots and tails and hooves. and It's crazy. So what's the connection? Well, the connection is this. With the smallpox epidemic, death was basically certain. And the cure the vaccination, so to speak, was ridiculed, it was mocked, protested, flat out denied. There's even been studies where doctors that did the previous practice of um, treating this condition, uh, they weren't making as much money when this came out, so they tried to push it out to say that it wasn't credible. But people, they were dying before a lot of people, but now they're living. Many rejected the findings, but what were they rejecting? They were rejecting life. To hit the point even further, just to make the more gospel more evident here, um, because the country, Britain, realized how crippling this issue is, they even offered the vaccination completely free so that any, everyone could have this vaccination. But it took a really long time. It wasn't until 1980 that smallpox was declared eradicated. It took a serious long time. And the alarming thing is that people knowing life was there for free. They still rejected it. That is much like apostasy. So let's jump into the text today. Hebrews 10 26 through 31 says this. Here, I'll grab a mic real quick. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, as we touched on earlier, (laughs) the warning here in this first portion of the text. It's very sobering it's drawing attention to some very serious matters and let's start with verse 26 for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins so I want you to know that there's a lot this verse is saying but I think there's also as much that it's not saying. It's dangerous to take out of context. It's dangerous to read it isolated by itself with no indication of how it fits into what the author intends for this passage. It could be possible to glance here and take from this verse the notion of, hey, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, but I have an ongoing sin issue that I'm really struggling with. I've surrendered it to him. I'm learning what life trusting Jesus means and how to trust the spirit to heal my mind and behaviors from my habitual sins. Is this verse saying that if I sin after accepting Christ, that I'm all of a sudden in deep waters, that I gotta look out for fire coming down from the sky? This verse is pointing to something different. But at the same time, if when you read verse 26, and if there was something brought to the surface in your mind, an addiction, living, in a, living life in a way that's not designed by God and his covenant and his just model for human flourishing through Jesus, dishonest practices, living for just getting as much gain as I can, or even as Randall was sharing last week, the struggle of the sexual sins. It's offensive, and this goes against the grain of culture. This verse by no means, by no means is this verse saying, hey, I responded to the gospel, I know Jesus is the Christ, blank check, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter, because if I can just do it, I can come back to him, he has to forgive me. That's a distortion. You're using God if that's the way you're living. But what the, the author, what he, his word choice here and what he's alluding to, you, you have to go back a long way in the Bible. You have to go back to the Torah, the first five books, And we're going to go to Numbers, Numbers 15, which, you know, very exciting stuff. And this is what it says. Um, So it starts in, so it's chapter 15 in Numbers, verse 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake, when he sins unintentionally, to make atonement for him. And he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentional for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything, and highlight this, if you're following along, with a high hand, rather he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised, and underline this too, the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Now, there's a few things here I want you to take note of. First off, even in the unmerciful law, we see that sins made Unintentionally, could be covered from a sacrifice, which would have happened after that person would have known Yahweh the Lord and lived under his covenant. And if you're familiar with Leviticus 6, which we're not going to dig into that, even sins intentionally made, yet marked by a response to reconcile and pay a price, a guilt offering, were made. And they were forgiven so as to see that even having an intentional sin that has been going on for a while, yet with a repentant heart, that Yahweh, the Lord, is there to accept you. This, instead, is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. And remember, his audience is one of Jewish Christians that thoroughly know the Old Testament. They know it very well. And when they hear if you sin deliberately, they go straight to Numbers 15. They go to verse 30. But the person who does anything with a high hand, rather he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. That person shall be utterly cut off his iniquity Shall be upon him. So, does anyone uh, in your your Facebook have they uh, have you seen that meme with the toddler with his fists raised? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> his fists raised in defiance. Well, that's exactly what the author is getting at here. With a high hand, which as it comes into Greek from Hebrew is the word deliberate. That's how it's translated. With a high hand is a way of saying a willful, intentional, resolute act of rejecting the word of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord. It's, it's pretty similar to apostasy, is it not? That's exactly what it is. One whom knows their sins, knows full well when knows full well whom Jesus is, but chooses what? What's their response? To deliberately sin, to deny Jesus. And the last phrase of the first takes us even further. There is no sacrifice for sins remaining. What does that mean? Why does he say that? For the person that has chosen to reject fall away, abandon Jesus as their Messiah, what have they chosen? They have chosen no salvation. They have said that, Jesus, you're not enough. So how can there be the gospel if you do not believe that Jesus is Jesus? Apostasy leaves you with no sacrifice for sins. And even as, as Tim Keller has said, people are happy with that. And that's scary, and that's disheartening. It leaves you before God. And this is what uh, Donald Hagner, who's a um, commentator on the New Testament, he has these words. The words, if we deliberately keep on sinning, do not refer to ordinary sins, but to the most grievous and final sin, apostasy. This is the sin by which its nature its very essence, puts the offender out of reach of God's forgiveness and therefore the sin from which there is no return. That the sin involves a uh, falling away is further indication by the words after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So we definitely kneel down here. Apostasy is going on. In verse 27 onward, this is what it says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two to three witnesses, quoting the Old Testament there. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? By which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So the warning builds off of what we just got done talking about earlier. So rejecting Jesus, hating Jesus, despising Jesus, it means no sacrifice for sins. It means what then awaits is wrath, is justice, is the righteousness that we cannot bear. And as Randall shared a couple weeks ago, we don't cover the gap and there is a consuming fire. God's justice is marked by his love. He loves you enough to bear the burden, the price, the weight of righteousness, the weight of justice. He has provided life. But does that mean that you'll choose it? Think for a moment back at Dr. Jenner in the anti-vaccine society. In the law, the witness of two to three witnesses would be enough to convict you. It would be enough to sentence you to death. The rhetorical devices employed to show if that's the way it was under the law, how do you suppose it shall be like for those that have been revealed, God's grace, and have a response? And how do they respond? By trampling Jesus under your foot, profaning the blood that is the life of the covenant, that is Jesus, the very life of the covenant. He was sanctified as to outrage the very spirit of grace. And lastly, the final verse here. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is pointing back to the Old Testament, as you can imagine, um, all the way back to Exodus 32. I believe it's Deuteronomy, actually, Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bonder free if there's anything i want you to take away from this message it's this it is because god is a god of justice and righteousness that he is a god of mercy a god of compassion a god abounding in love exodus 34 think for a moment, should you witness a crime this week or just something, maybe when you're on the way to school or work or just a playground with your kids and when you're there, you witness someone being bullied, assaulted, belittled, defamed. Is it loving to let that person be treated so? Is it loving to be passive? Is it loving to pretend as though nothing's wrong at all? And what if it was your child on the playground? Of course, that's not loving. Would it be loving if Yahweh the Lord chose not to see restoration and justice be sown into his creation? Yet God has provided a sacrifice out of love so that you could be covered. His justice points to his love just as his love points to his justice. And as we finish this point, I want you to know that apostasy is the terminal result of both gospel distortions, that of, legal, uh, that of legalism, so the notion of I can work my way up to God, that my righteousness is there, which is not true, and that of license, the blank check, it's also not true, and it's slow process downward. You must absolutely preach the gospel to yourself every day. Maybe it's making a practice of it. First thing I do when I wake up, last thing I do before I end my day. You must be reminded of what God has carried you through and the deep forgiveness that is woven into his very name, into his very character, Our final observation from the text is persecution. This is the other is is really heavy. And it's not easy to talk about. It's not very comfortable to talk about. So this is what the remainder of chapter 10 says. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, underline this, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward, for you have need of, underline this too, endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls f f Bruce who 's also a New Testament commentator, he notes this, which I think is is really helpful as we try to um, just understand what 's going on here in in the letter. So our author does not wish to discourage his readers but to embolden them so that they will emerge victorious from the growing test of faith. This he does now in the first place by reminding them of how they stood a severe test in the earlier days of their, as Christians. So it's helpful to see that the writers of Hebrews, after really, some really hard warnings, he brings to mind encouragement by reminding the community of believers how they were faithful. And a pre, and in the previous part, it's very trying. They endured noticeable persecution. And I don't want us to just walk past that. I don't want us to just walk past like there's nothing going on here. Like there's no truly trying suffering that this church, that this community is going through. So, following Jesus, it comes at a heavy cost for many. There's people, it costs them their life. Like, I'm not gonna sugarcoat that. We are fortunate where we live that identifying as a disciple of Jesus does not land us in jail. And even further down the line for the churches here in the province of Rome, persecution got really bad. Persecution is to be dealt with harshly and unduly because the values, views, and ideas that you are associated with. And although you may not have been oppressed for identifying as a Christian and a follower of Jesus, that's not true for everyone. And I think it helps introduce a question that I want you to process through. Do unbelievers that I do life with know that I'm a follower of Christ? Or this question, does my life as a disciple bear close enough resemblance to Jesus for someone to even know that I am a Christian? Persecution still goes on, and I urge you to see the importance of being a gospel presence where the gospel isn't. In your different pockets rather friends and family, work, school, wherever it is that you are. And I pray that, because you probably aren't experiencing persecution, that your faith would have the same kind of vitality and extent of dependence on Christ as if you were under constant persecution. So look at what the text says. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one so this faith community this church gave up a great deal they were afflicted suffered lost their property, they were in jail. Now, there's, a, there's a, a little bit more going on on that. So when you hear someone's in jail, it's easy for us to think about what being in jail means to our cultural and historical moment. So um, if you've ever been, like, had a f- family or friend or loved one that was in prison, your concern wasn't whether or not they had food or water. And even if you do research, I think like the average inmate costs the state like $40,000, $45,000 a year per person. Now, I, I want you to, to just remove that from your head. So um, Christians that were persecuted and thrown into jail, if they didn't have a means of income or if they didn't have people bring them food, water their essential needs they just weren't met and you know what that means and this persecution it it came on the decrees um by claudius of rome in in ad 49 if you like history which is important to know because it means that yes it was an expulsion of the jewish believers Outside of these provinces, but it was not the kind of persecution that happened under Nero Where it was entertaining for people to watch Christians be killed Paul even alludes to that when he says that the universe has made it spectacle He's literally saying that they have been placed on stage And it's entertaining for people to see this kind of oppression and I know that's the, it's, it's not very uh, gleeful to think about, but it's important to know that it's going on here. Persecution set forth for a lot of believers in this community, yet Christ was the greater treasure, the greater blessing, the greater promise, and continues to exist well after the Roman Empire is gone, and the Roman Empire could not take it away from them how easy it is to compromise to the world if it means you will have a safe, comfortable, easy life. Maybe that's relatable. Maybe it's easy to not want to be that gospel presence because it means people are going to know who I am. And Jesus said, the world will hate you for it hated me. But all too common We never bear witness to the name of Jesus around our friends and peers. Persecution produces apostasy, I would say, as much as doubt or pride. So how do I respond? I know what not to do, but what should I do? Do not throw away the confidence that you have in Jesus. Have confidence in the faithful one. Have faith in the one that is always faithful. Endure and find rest in Jesus, but do have boldness, have courage, have assurance where you are that you do not shrink back, but are a faithful presence and an expression, a living document of how the gospel is shaping you have full confidence that Jesus is your king, your priest, your lord. So last verses in Hebrews 10, they point to the words from a prophet in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. Always I'm probably saying it wrong. So in chapter 2, for still the vision awaits and its appointed time, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, what do you do? Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And just very minor background, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, he saw and he witnessed injustice, a people far from Yahweh the Lord. They had forgotten him. They had forsaken him. They have fallen away, which is just Bible language for apostasy. And the prophet desires so desperately to see the Lord's justice and restoration over the nation. He wants to see that so much. Yet like the community, the church here in Hebrews, we must wait we must endure and know that although it seems slow, painfully slow, yet nonetheless wait upon Christ for the righteous live by faith and they have placed their faith in Yahweh. And Yahweh will respond. He already has. Just think about the name Jesus Christ for a minute. Is, is Christ Jesus' last name? Was, was he born You know, to um, Mary and Joseph Christ? It's, it's, it's an important question. No, not at all. Not at all. Christ is a title. It means Messiah, anointed one, king. And what does Jesus mean? Well Jesus as it comes into the Greek from Hebrew, Yeshua or Yehoshua, if you want to the whole spiel there, is Joshua, which means God saves or God provides salvation. He has through King Jesus, through Jesus our Lord and our Savior. So just a couple quick takeaways. We won't take too long on these, I promise. Uh, The takeaways for this message, they require a little bit of working backwards. So uh, in talking through apostasy and persecution, we have seen the ways, the dangers to the Christian walk, the Christian life as disciples. I wish to ask the question, okay, if I know what not to do, what then do I do? what is the healthy response to jesus and earlier in chapter 10 we have the exact answer that question and it starts in verse 19 we're going to read through it real quick therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what do we do? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without favoring, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So let's revisit that question. What is the, what's the right way to respond to Jesus? I think there's three answers to that question here. If you're taking notes, definitely take notes here. It's very important. So one, let us draw near. Two, let us hold on, hold on fast. Three, let us stir up one another in a good way, not in a bad way. So very quick word on each. Let us draw near because of the gospel, And that hope that we have in Jesus as our priest, the kind of priest that offers up his life freely as the sacrifice for sins, it's because of that that we can draw near to God. That is to say that we can draw near to the Spirit, the very holy of holies, because of the confidence that we have in what Jesus has already done. We may draw near because Jesus has made it so. Further temple language here happens with being sprinkled by blood, which you think about it, you're like, that's weird, I don't want that. But what's going on here? His blood, his life, the blood of the new living covenant gives you the ability to be present before God. For God has placed his spirit in those that believe in him. Therefore, draw near, be close to him, abide in him. But I would encourage never depart from him. Let us hold on. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. And we mostly think of confession in terms of like really bad stuff, right? Bad stuff that I do, that I'm really ashamed about. I miss the mark. I messed up, so time to pray and confession. So in scripture, there's all confession towards wonderful things, towards glorious things. Confess the hope that you have in Jesus. And maybe that is praying specifically, that prayer of how you profess and confess who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus is faithful. Hold on tightly to him. And he has brought the promises of the Father into completion. Hold on to him. Abide in him. Let the spirit take up full residence in your life. Don't just give him, you know, the spare room upstairs and no one stays in. But the whole house. May this be your identity in the very choices and behaviors that you exhibit. And lastly, let us stir up one another. Let us stir up one another to do what? To do good works and never neglecting to meet up with one another, encouraging one another, for the day is drawing near. Jesus is coming back. We know that. Do life together well. If you haven't read, we have it in the um, resources tent. Life Together from Bonhoeffer, read it. It's an amazing book. And I would encourage you, get connected with one of our groups, our city groups, men's and women's, doing life together. Do community with one another. Be a missional gospel family. It's one of our values here. And it's a huge need in our city, we know that, and let's just be, you know, honest and upfront. The default setting is efficiency and privacy. But I want you to know that you weren't made to thrive that way. God is a relational God. He's interdependent. He's a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are made in his image. So to think that we can flourish and not be relational and not be interdependent, the math just doesn't add up. We need one another just as the Hebrews Church needed one another. So write these three things down. Ask yourself daily, are you responding to Jesus well in these three ways? And lastly, and I mean this, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Believe and trust that the gospel is enough. It's enough to stay the course. It's enough to remain in the practice of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we, uh, we draw near to you. We, we love you, we need you, we seek you. I just pray over this, this challenging text that your word speaks, that your word shows us what your will is for our life, that we trust your gospel, that we trust your message, that we trust that you're powerful and good enough and working boldly through our lives. I pray just that we would see that you are with us, that we aren't alone and we need you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.